If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that Greg, along with Oshida and Shauna, with uh, Delon and Cedric, have taken us into a crucially important topic around racial justice. Along the way, they've challenged us, particularly us white folks, to take a look at realities we have for so long and too often neglected. Realities like white supremacy and white privilege, systemic racism. The plan for today was for Greg and Cedric to team preach a sermon that would take us deeper into a particular issue, namely the biblical idea of systemic evil and what that might mean for us in our cultural context today. That was the plan. And then a few days ago, Greg started not feeling so great. Uh, long story short, uh, Greg wisely uh, went and got a COVID test, uh, videotaped his portion of the message, and decided to rest at home until he found out the results. Now the good news, we just found out literally an hour or so ago that Greg doesn't have COVID. Praise God. Uh, but Greg still isn't feeling great, so he's resting at home. And here's what today looks like now. Uh, we're going to begin with uh, the first part of Greg's message, in which he unpacks the biblical concept of systemic evil using the ideas that Paul talks about of principalities and powers. After that, Cedric is here with us live today, and he's going to take us from that, that more general concept of systemic evil into a concrete look at what that means for our culture in terms of one way that systemic racism has played out. After that, Greg's going to come back, share a few more words by video, and finally, Cedric and I will be able to wrap things up by pressing a bit deeper into the things we've heard today on this topic. And so with that, here's Greg. Good morning, Woodland Hills. Greg, I'm Greg Boyd, teaching pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. Um, actually, I'm not actually with you in this morning. This is a pre-recorded message. And it's pre-recorded because I was with a lot of people for two weeks, um, and uh, you know, the rallies, and I went to the funeral, and all of that. And then the last couple of days, I've been developing a hack, a cough, and so I, it could just be a chest cold. But out of an abundance of caution, they say that if you've been in large crowds and have any symptoms, well, then you should quarantine yourself for 14 days. So I don't want to be around the worship team and everybody else, and 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 then one of them gets sick, and it's on my fault. So uh, we're doing this early, abundance of precaution. Um, yeah, so the strange message just got a little stranger, you know, and, and what's going to make this even stranger is that while I'm doing this message, uh, uh, Cedric Baker is going to come up uh, two-thirds of the way through it, and he's going to contribute a piece. Uh, so I'll have pre-recorded, then Cedric will be live, and then I'll come back. It's going to be really strange. So let me start with this. Uh, this is a, like the first negative experience, first negative racial experience I had uh, that I can remember. Um, my wife and I just got married, and we were uh, back in 1979. We're going on 41 years. Everyone, she's a lucky woman. And uh, um, uh, yeah, so then we got married. And next week, we moved out to Yale, uh, New Haven, Connecticut, because I was going to uh, attend Yale Divinity School. Um, we moved into the uh, married dorms and then almost got a divorce because of the circumstances, but that's a different ser sermon. So about two or three days after we'd settled down, I went off for a little jog. I was running a lot in those days, and um, I just bought a Yale t-shirt, so I was wearing a Yale t-shirt as I went off for a jog. Uh, and as usual, I don't think about where I'm going. I you know, just kind of get lost in my thought. Back in those days, I could run miles and miles and miles without even getting winded, so I would just not even think about it. 
which is kind of a white male privilege if you think about it, because uh, I assume that I can jog anywhere I want and I'm safe, but if you're female, you probably don't share that conviction, and if you're not white, you might not share the conviction, uh, depending on what region you're in. But I go out and I'm thoughtlessly running around, and, and at some point I just noticed, maybe two, three miles out, I noticed that uh, I'm in a different neighborhood. Um, I noticed that there aren't the kind of nice houses that there were around Yale. Uh, there's, I am in what looks like a ghetto. Uh, and I noticed I haven't noticed any white people for a long while. Uh, the streets were full of these black people, but no white people. Uh, the folks were sitting on their porch. Uh, some guys were on street corners talking. There's some kids playing around, whatever. And I'm just jogging through there. Now, um, Everything was fine. I, I, I would wave to people, you know, like, hi, hi, you know, and, and I, was, I did notice that sometimes that the people didn't wave back. They looked kind of me curiously, and I didn't know what that was about. But a little while as I'm in this neighborhood, I, I began to be, get people calling out to me, uh, saying things to me, and they weren't necessarily very nice. Like, uh, hey, we got a whitey or we got a Yaley here checking out our town, and they started kind of making these harassing calls to me. I try to ignore it. Um, I don't understand it, but um, I stop waving to people because it's getting a little hostile. And, and then folks from uh, one corner would holler up to the next corner, hey, guess who's coming your way? And, and then sometimes, and in two, two instances, people walked out in the street kind of to intimidate me. I had to run kind of through them. I'm picking my pace a little bit. I'm getting a little nervous, and I'm still very confused. Why, why, aren't, why, why don't these people like me? Uh, and at one point, they, they, in, in their hollering and harassing, somebody threw a beer bottle at me. It landed about a foot away from me, and now I really picked up my pace, and I got myself out of there. Now, for a long while, I, I was just confused about that. I was mad about that. I didn't get it. I, I've shared before that I was raised with a dad who was very vocal, uh, you know, pro-civil rights, whatever. So I always saw myself as being, you know, on, on, on your side. You know, I, I'm, I'm your friend. And here are these people who, just because I'm wearing a Yale t-shirt, and just because I'm white, or just because of whatever, they don't like me. And, and uh, I was mad and I was hurt about that. And when you're mad and hurt, you tend to, you want to blame somebody. And so you look at the person in front of you. Uh, your, your higher brain functions aren't working when you're mad and hurt. Uh, you're reactionary. And so you tend to pin it on you know, the person who brought about your hurt or brought about your, 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 your anger. And, and so for a while, I just stayed mad. It's like, you folks, that was wrong for you to do. I was, you know, I was treated unfairly. And that, when you, when you blame someone in front of you, you're putting the, the emphasis on their choice. You shouldn't have chosen to, to treat me that way. Now, for about a year, I think, I lived in kind of a mindset where I was confused and angry and hurt. Um, and I found that that made me, I, 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 for the first time in my life, I began to get kind of wary of, of black people. I was nervous because um, I was living in that fear. And that's what it does. It just sort of shapes you. In time, I begin to ask other questions and begin to probe, like, why is it that all these people just happen to react so strongly to me being a white guy jogging through the neighborhood with a yellow t-shirt? That's weird. All, all of them, and not all of them, but a good portion of them. And, when, and then we begin to wonder, why is it that they're all located in this neighborhood that uh, looks very different from what you find at Yale. How is it that we have this prestigious institution, uh, you know, and, and all this nice, wonderful property, but then all around it, not all around it, but quite a, quite a bit around it, you've got this, these areas that are clearly very impoverished. And I began to do a little digging, and it turns out that there is actually a long history. There was. Uh, in the 80s, Yale poured millions and millions of dollars to correcting this, and so that's to their credit. Uh, but, but when I was there in the early 80s, um, 
uh, there was a, just a lot of tension. There had been a long history of conflict between Yale and the, the, the black communities around Yale. Uh, whenever Yale wanted to expand and needed more space, needed another building, boom, they just grabbed, um, at least by some accounts here. And, and uh, um, they, they split apart communities, kind of like what the highway system did with the Rondo neighborhood here in the Twin Cities. Uh, there's just a lot, and the grievances were rarely addressed, uh, often were swept under the rug. And this went on for decades and decades and decades and decades. And so there's a lot of animosity uh, and anger towards what Yale represents. And so as I jog down there, I'm to them I represent, and I sure represents something. My whiteness represents something. So I, I, I initially wanted to blame the individuals who, who, who uh, were hassling me. And there, if, if that guy who threw the bottle, if that would have hit my head, he would be accountable. If I had gotten damaged or something, he would be accountable for that. I believe that. But appealing to free choices, I learned that doesn't explain anything. Um, it, it, it's, it doesn't say the whole story. To understand the choices that people make, you have to zoom out a little bit and look at a history. Look at the systems that they're a part of. Um, you can't myopically look at the one individual. Now see, in Western culture, and by the way, we'll be getting to a scripture here pretty soon. I'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, but in Western culture, we tend to be driven with this, with, by an ideology of individualism. We tend to see things very individual, individualistically. We tend to focus on the person who made the choice, and, and, and we have this need to hold them accountable. They should be held accountable. And because we're so, we're so individualistic, um, that tends to be the whole story for us. If you want to know why somebody did something, why they chose to engage in a certain action, you ask them why they did it, and that's pretty much all you need to do. That explains everything. So, so free will and free choice becomes an explanation for anything. Why are there a disproportionate number of, of, of black males in prison? Um, well, they just choose to do that. Uh, how come uh, there is a, a, a problem in the black families with, with a, a higher percentage of fathers who are gone? Well, you know, they, they, just, they just choose not to, to take responsibility for their family. They just choose to do it. Why are there these disparities between different uh, ethnic groups? Well, I guess people just choose differently. We focus on the individual choice. It's not only white people who are saying this. Uh, there are some very um, successful and very affluent uh, African-American folks that are espousing this individualistic perspective, calling people to hold people account. And, and to folks like this, when they hear things like systemic racism, systemic prejudice, uh, white supremacy, uh, they think that, that that's just sort of a cover for people, you know, or excuse for people not to take responsibility for the choices they make. Oh yeah, blame it on the system instead of owning up to it. And there are African Americans who are, are, are espousing this position, saying, look, if you look at Oprah Winfrey, or you know, Barack Obama, or C C Colin Powell, or any number of successful black folks, uh, they often were born in conditions where they had obstacles against them, and yet they made choices that got them out of that and became a success. So if they chose to do that, so can you, and so can you, so can you, so can everybody. And so free will becomes the explanation for everything. Sometimes there's a kind of a conspiracy uh, added to this of sorts, uh, where it's some folks, the, the, it's the liberal left that has drummed up this whole idea of white supremacy. We created this idea of black oppression, and, and according 
to this account here, we, the, the left wing did that as a way of keeping uh, black folks oppressed, living in a victim mindset, and thinking that they need these, this liberal group to pull them out of that, so that secures them the vote. The bottom line is getting people to vote for you. That's the, the view out there. Now, as I share that, I imagine there's some folks here who um, that kind of ticks you off when you hear that sort of thing. Uh, white ra racism is a myth in America, some folks would say. White supremacy, that's a, it's a total myth. But before you just get angry and react to that, which is on Twitter, if, you would, if I would have said that on Twitter, well, then there'll be a pile on here, and then some people pile, it just gets a pile on. But it's always good to stop and ask, hey, what are they worried about? What's the concern driving this? Rather than to think, oh, that they're just closet racist, ask, well, what is driving this? And there's a legitimate concern here, and the, legit, the legitimate concern is that we, we retain the concept of morally responsible free choices. Uh, that people, you know, take ownership for their issues and take ownership for, for their decisions. Um, they're afraid that this talk of systemic stuff, and I can't speak like this is all one group, but, but uh, so far as they've been able to discern, they, they're afraid that all this talk of systemic stuff uh, undermines the moral responsibility of individuals. And, and so that's what they're really concerned with. Um, uh, you have to hang on to that. And frankly, the ways I hear sometimes people talk on the left, they so emphasize the role that history plays in fashioning people and that systems play in fashioning people that, as I listen to them anyway, it's almost like they don't think that black folks have any free will. Uh, it's as though black folks are completely defined by the system and the history that preceded them. And if in that case, then there's no more responsibility. They're just victims. But that's insulting, and that's racist. Uh, the overemphasis is, is, is wrong, so that's the concern. The trouble is, is that as an overreaction against the systems kind of talk, these folks buy into that individualistic Western paradigm and just focus on the choice to the exclusion of all talk about systems and history. And when you do that, well, when you do that, you can't help but come to a racist conclusion. Think about this. If you're not going to appeal to history and you're not going to appeal to systems or anything else that can possibly explain uh, statistically significant behavior, if you're not going to do that, what, what, what else do you have left? Nothing but the choice. So if you find out that uh, you know, blacks form 13% of the American population but uh, comprise almost 50% of the prison population, if you ask, why is that? See, I would want to give a history of America and all the factors that led into this without undermining anyone's individual free will and choice and moral responsibility and they need to be held accountable. Yes, yes, yes. But to explain this statistic anomaly, this group, I, I, I would want to appeal to systemic factors and the history. But if you're not going to do that, all you can do is say, well, they, I, I guess they just choose that. I guess that's, they, they just choose, they, they choose to live a life of crime rather than uh, uh, do the hard work to become successful. They just choose. Which is equivalent to saying, I guess these black folks just all choose that way. Which now you're saying that the way they, the way they choose that way is because they're black. Uh, what other conclusion can you come to? It's... Um, yeah, I guess that's just what they choose. So if there's ethnic disparities between different groups, it's like, oh, I guess different ethnic groups choose differently. Or, to use this language, I guess different races choose differently, which means the basis of the difference is the race, which is the very definition of racism. A second thing is this, is that if you, it just strikes me so counterintuitive to think that people just make a choice. They just decide to choose something with, without no, 
and that their history, the background, the systems don't have any influence in that. Uh, this group seems to be saying that the 200 years of slavery and the 200 years of strategically keeping blacks out of power, and that's undeniable. When you look at Reconstruction and, and then the, the rent and inmate thing and all those different ways that whites have worked to keep blacks out of power, to say that that has nothing, that has no effect on, on black folks today or on brown folks today, it just strikes me as at best counterintuitive, if not ludicrous. It, it, it'd be like trying to... I asked the question, why do, why, how come these people don't like me in the neighborhood I was jogging through? And, and it's like saying that the history of bad race relationships between Yale and the black community has nothing to do with the choices that these folks made in harassing me uh, and throwing a bottle at me. Of course it has a lot to do with it. That's why I represent this uh, to them. So we need to hang on to this polarity or this tension in a balance. Yes, there is morally responsible free will, but we also have to understand the systems in which that free will gets exercised because that has an influence on them. Um, the balance has to be there. But probably the greatest argument, the biggest argument I would use in, uh, in, in, for this balance is that this is the way the Bible talks. It just does. We, 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 we find in the scripture that God holds people individually accountable for the choices they make. But we also find in the Bible, the Bible does not endorse an ideology of, of uh, individualism. Uh, and not at all. It understands every individual as being part of a greater whole. And that part of a greater whole being part of another greater whole. And so when the Bible talks about families, or sometimes just about people groups, or, or, or nations even, it sometimes treats them as one person. In fact, it sometimes treats the whole human race as one person. Uh, there's, a there's a reality to the whole of people coming together that's more than just the sum of their parts. Uh, yes, there are individuals that make free choices, but those individuals are always embedded in a, in a community uh, and in a culture and in a history. And to understand the individuals, you need to understand that culture and that history and the systems that form them. Uh, you might say that James, or, or that the Bible agrees with, uh, what's his name, John Dunn, James Dunn, where no man is an island. D-O-N-N-E, -N -N -E, I think that's the poet. Uh, no man is an island, and that's very true. We're all interconnected. The Bible grasps that. We're interconnected. And the holes and the groups and the society that we're a part of help shape us. Uh, that, alone, that alone ought to make every kingdom person um, suspicious about any narrative that, that completely focuses either on the individual choice or only on the systems. The systems denying the free will, the free will denying the systems. The way the Bible talks about things alone should uh, uh, inform us that we need to be holding these things together uh, in tension and in balance. The other thing that the Bible does uh, that uh, shows that the individualistic perspective is, 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 is not adequate is it talks about principalities and powers. Um, these, this, this, these spiritual realities that uh, we're, we're to be aware of. Listen to what, what, what uh, Paul or a disciple of Paul writes in the book of Ephesians. Uh, he says this. This is the NRSV version. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Listen to this now. For our struggle is not against enemies of flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and the cosmic powers of this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. But now, then he mentions these categories of beings. 
He mentions here rulers and authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces of evil. Uh, in other places, New Testament authors will talk about the principalities and the powers, or the dominions, or the elemental spirits. Some scholars argue that the way uh, Paul uses the concept of sin, it actually denotes a principality and power, a spiritual agent that's always drawing people towards sin. The same thing could be said about greed, uh, named mammon, or about death, uh, the way Paul talks about it. It's a principality and power. Um, and so I'll just refer to those kind of different, all those names as the powers or the principalities and powers. Uh, it's interesting, but uh, in the literature surrounding the New Testament in the first century, we find uh, a lot of interest in all these different categories and, and with categories above the other and whatever. Paul shows no interest in that. He wants us to know that there are these, these, this hierarchy of, of principalities and powers, but has no interest in, in trying to flesh out the particularities uh, of this. Now, and when you understand this language about the principalities and powers in its original uh, first century context, it, be, it becomes clear that these, these, these refer to agents who were entrusted by God over large areas of the cosmos. Uh, you might call them arch, archangels. And, and they're, they're entrusted, like humans were entrusted to take care of the earth and the animal kingdom. That was our mandate. Well, these agents were entrusted to take care of structural things dealing with the cosmos, running of the cosmos, and structural aspects of society. And it, it, God's hope was that they would use their authority in line with God's purposes to bring about God's will throughout the cosmos as it is in heaven. Uh, but some of these agents rebelled against God. Uh, there was a civil war of sorts that broke out, and they now used their authority at cross-purposes with God, which is why aspects of nature are corrupt. That's why nature doesn't reflect the wonderful character of God all the time. And it's why human society is so uh, persistently div divisive and full of violence. Um, so I want to pause for a second and say this that I know that there's quite a few people that are joining us uh, for the first time or the second time or the third time. And um, you probably joined us because you heard a message and that here's a church that you're assuming is a progressive evangelical church and can speak out against racism, and we are. But now you're hearing that we believe in the devil and we believe in principalities and powers. And, and now you're, maybe you're thinking, well, my gosh, they're a bunch of fundamentalists. Well, we are not a bunch of fundamentalists. But uh, I can't speak for everybody, but I believe in principalities and powers and Satan and the rest. And the reason I believe that is I think I've got good reasons for believing that. And I can't go into all those now, of course, but I'll just say this. Uh, I've got really good historical and philosophical and existential and spiritual reasons for believing Jesus Christ is Lord. The historical Jesus is Lord. And... Uh, it's very clear from the gospel records that, that Jesus believed in demons and Satan and principality and powers. And if I call him Lord, I have trouble correcting his theology on that, especially on such a fundamental matter. And, and so if, if it was good enough for Jesus the Lord, I have to say it's good enough for me. But that's just one of the reasons why I believe this stuff. But look, maybe you're not there yet, and that's okay. All right, that's, that's a too big of a jump. I would still encourage you to hang in there, and not just for this message, but we're going to be talking about this for the next couple of weeks. And, and I encourage you to hang in there, even if you don't yet believe that, that there really are literal beings that are principalities and powers or whatever. Because here's the thing. While I think believing in Satan and demons and the rest is important for other theological reasons, when it comes to understanding how the powers relate to social systems, and in particular to race, uh, you don't need to have a belief in them as, as, as these, these independent beings. 
In fact, there's a lot of scholars today who, are, who don't believe in a literal Satan or literal principalities and powers, and yet they believe that the, the language about the principalities and powers in the New Testament is vitally, vitally important because it highlights something that we in the West don't tend to see. All right, so uh, I, I encourage you to hang in there. I think you'll find some insights. And eventually, maybe you'll come to believe this, or maybe you won't. One of the uh, main spokespersons uh, in, in recent times dealing with the powers is uh, a guy named Walter Wink. He just passed away this last year. Uh, he wrote a trilogy of books on the powers. Um, and they're really, really good. Very insightful stuff. Even though I disagree with him about the ontological reality of Satan and the powers and, and whatnot. But, but he, here's, what, here's what he and a number of other scholars are arguing. Um, that, that the language of the powers, they think, names a reality, a transcendent reality, a transcendent quality that accompanies people, people groups when we come together. Um, that when people come together, especially for a particular purpose, the unity of the group is more than just the sum of all the parts. And, and there's a whole there, a reality there. And that's what uh, Walter Wink says, that's the, that, that's the kind of thing that the powers are pointing to, that language of the powers is pointing to. Uh, every group has a sort of spirit core, a spirit to it. And most of us know that. A, a church, in some senses, like, has one personality. It's got a, a lot of diversity and personalities in it, but it has a, there's a spirit that kind of... And that spirit helps shape everybody who's a part of it. Classrooms have that. Um, cultures have that. Nations have that. Uh, you know, there's a principality and power behind that. And nationalism, when it gets out of control, uh, it can be, be incredibly destructive. Uh, individuals in, in, in circumstances where there's a strong spirit there, whether it's in a mob or whether it's in Nazi Germany, uh, they'll do things sometimes that they wouldn't do as individuals. In fact, sometimes they regret what they did while they were in the group, but they got carried away. The momentum of the group, the reality of the group, the principality in power exerted an influence on them as it does on all the individuals with, with, within a group. Um, so the Bible then comes up with this, where there is individual responsibility that we all have to own. But there's also the powers and the reality of these organic holes that, help, that shape people, these, the systems that shape us without knowing it. They're invisible, they're unconscious, and yet they shape us. And both of those realities have to be held in balance, in tension. And having said that, I'm now going to turn it over to my very smart friend, Cedric. Uh, he's been on our worship team for several years. Uh, he is a super smart guy who's the assistant superintendent of the St. Paul School District, if I remember correctly. Uh, and he knows a lot about systems. And so I asked him, would you come up here and just share some insights that you've got about systems? Uh, understanding how the systems work. Uh, how they work their way into human society and wreak their destruction. So Cedric, take it away. Uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Cedric Baker, and I'm really glad to be here. Um, I just want to start by saying thank you to Greg. Um, he didn't get my title quite right for work, but it's good enough. Thank you again. Um, I really appreciate this opportunity to really dig deeper into understanding systems that really perpetuate racial inequity and just racial oppression. Um, Greg talked a little earlier around uh, principalities and powers, and I really want us to see how principalities and powers really have worked against us as a society 
um, to really play each other. And I think it's important for us as people of God to really understand that. And also he talked about Ephesians 6, and I think one of the most important verses in there is the 11th verse. And it really talks about uh, really standing up against the enemies. It says wiles, but in some translations, it's schemes and strategies. So for us to stand up against the schemes and strategies, we need to know what they are. And so we're going to dig a little bit deeper into really understanding some of these strategies and schemes that the principalities and powers play. And so to start, I really want to ground us in a working definition. So when I say systems of racial oppression, that you understand what I'm saying and that we're on the same page. And with that, I'm talking about structural racism. Um, the Aspen Institute Roundtable for Community Change came up to me with a great definition and I want to read it to you this morning. It says, structural racism is a system in which public policies, institutional practices, cultural representations, and other norms work in various, often reinforcing ways to perpetuate racial group inequity. It identifies dimensions of our history and culture that have allowed privileges associated with whiteness and disadvantages associated with color to endure and adapt over time. Structural racism is not something that a few people or institutions choose to practice. Instead, it has been a feature of the social, economic, and political systems in which we all exist. So structural racism is actually woven into the fabric of our society. Um, uh, many people may say, well, I don't really participate in social racism, but this working definition says that you really can't get away from it. It is kind of how we operate as a society from the beginning and the founding of this country. And so I want us to really understand that when we um, think about Greg's message and um, the few words that I'm going to say, um, that it's a re reinforcing way, um, really the powers are working against us. So I have a few questions for you. Why is the unemployment rate for black people twice as high than it is for white people? I want you to think about that. Think about what you know. Think about what you've heard, what you've seen, what you've experienced to try to answer this question. Why is that the case? There's a study from Stanford University researchers which found that out of 100 million traffic stops, black and Hispanic people are more often stopped by police based on less evidence of wrongdoing. Why is that the case? Ask yourself why. Why does 76% of households headed by a white person own their home compared to just only 24% of black people. Actually, that stat is here in Minnesota. Why is that the case? And I also want to highlight that that is actually one of the worst disparities in the country here in the state. Why? If it is true that people of color and black people have experienced a lot of progress over the last 50 to 100 years, better paying jobs, more education, upward mobility. If that is the case, why is the racial disparities as large as what they are? And in many instances, widening. Why is that the case? So what I'd like to submit to you and offer to you is if we dig deeper, 
One of the ways we see how this racial gap actually has existed, and in many instances increasing, is based on structural racism, but specifically in housing. Over the last few weeks, we've talked a little bit around uh, redlining. And if you remember correctly, redlining was when banks denied mortgages to people of color, uh, specifically black people, to exclude them from certain neighborhoods. Those neighborhoods were predominantly white or white-only neighborhoods. So there was a concerted effort by banks that was also supported by communities, local governments, and also federal governments to keep bank mortgages away from uh, black people, to keep them out of certain neighborhoods, and to move them into certain areas of the city. I also want to bring up something that some of you may not have heard of, and it's called racial restrictive covenants or racial covenants. Racial covenants were legal clauses written into the property deeds that restricted the sale of property to white people, thus excluding black people. So this is a legal clause written into the property deed that restricted the sale only to white people so people of color or black people were not able to buy um, by the property. Uh, here, if you see this image that we're going to show you, um, it's from the Hennepin County property records here in Minnesota, and this is some of the language from a racial covenant. It says, it is further stipulated and agreed by and between the parties hereto for themselves, their heirs, and assigns as part of the consideration hereof that the within described premises shall not be sold, mortgaged, or leased to or occupied by any person or persons other than members of the Caucasian race. Now, I want you to understand that that is actual legal documentation written into a property deed that ultimately says if you take out the further stipulated consideration thereof, hereto, wherefore, what it's really getting at is that sale of the home can only go to a white person. Another slide here for you, and it's from the National Association of Real Estate Board Ethics Handbook. And it reads, a realtor should never be instrumental in introducing into the neighborhood a character of property or occupancy, members of any race or nationality, or any individual whose presence will clearly be detrimental to property value in that neighborhood. This is from a realtor's association. And the realtor's job was to ensure that people of color, and specifically black people, did not move into white-only neighborhoods. Why? Because they believed that there would be detrimental ramifications to the property value of those white neighbors' homes. I bring this up because there's also something here about attitudes and beliefs. For many white people over the years, their attitude and beliefs have been black people living in their neighborhoods were actually bad for their neighborhoods because of what we saw earlier, um, we saw earlier property value. And so because of that, it said to people of color or black people that there was something inherently wrong because of the color of their skin. 
So why is this information important? Why did I even bring it up? The reason it's important is because currently for the average American here in the United States, the majority of our wealth is built through home ownership. Laws, policies, and practices created barriers or made it impossible to buy a home and grow well for the majority of black people and norms really reinforcing this effort. So when you think about it, it was just hard in general for people of color or black people to build wealth because in general, we build wealth in this country, the majority of us, is through home ownership. So when you put this all together for housing, you had redlining that we talked about, racial restrictive covenants, federal laws that supported this work, city, local planners, and real estate developers working together to create the environment, and you also had residents in neighborhoods with attitudes and belief really saying to people of color and black people, you don't belong here. We don't want you here. And when you add all of that up, to me, ladies and gentlemen, this would be an example of structural racism against people of color and black people with lasting effects up and until this day. And with that, I'll turn it back over to Greg. I appreciate that, Cedric. Um, of course, I wasn't here to listen to it, but Cedric and I talked this out ahead of time, and so I know what he was going to say, and it was good, wasn't it? Give my hand, a warm Woodland Hills hand. Oh, yeah, really, way to go, Cedric. I, I appreciate it so much, that brother. You know, uh, Paul, Eddie, uh, my covenant bro, he, he told me uh, a, a story this last week that I, I wanted to share. Um, it had to do with redlining, and, and he, he, he remembers a time when he as a teenager, or, or right around that time, uh, his dad said to him that one of the uh, front four on the Minnesota Vikings, this is in the 60s now, uh, one of the front four, and these were the purple people eaters that went to the uh, Super Bowl twice, they were just famous. One of them was Carl Eller, or, or um, I forget, uh, Alan Page maybe, but they wanted to buy a house in the neighborhood that they lived in, that, that the Eddies lived in. But there was a racial covenant that prohibited that. He wasn't able, a Minnesota Viking, a hero, wasn't able to uh, move into this neighborhood. And this is the late 60s. Um, as dad said to him, uh, and I got Paul's permission to uh, share this, by the way. His dad said, you know, it's too bad. Because a lot of us would have really have liked to have, you know, whoever it was, Alan Page, move in here. You know, to have a celebrity in our neighborhood. We, we would really like that. But then again, it would just lower everyone's property value. Now, now, now think about this, because it illustrates how these systems work. I'm sure dad, Paul's dad was a wonderful guy. How else could he have such a wonderful son like Paul, right? He's got to be wonderful. I'm sure he would have been nothing to do with racism. Nothing. But as we look back on that, we can see, I, I hope we can see, that that is absolutely racist. But it's, it's, it was self-evident to his dad that, that oh, this is just an unfortunate thing. Um, Look at the core beliefs that are governing this. On the one hand, uh, the, this, this, that statement assumes that it's okay for white people to decide that they only want to live around other white people. That itself is an expression of white superiority. No one else gets to do that, but we do. Okay, so it, it's, 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 it's white supremacy right there. On top of that, the statement presupposes that um, it's self-evident that the lowering of property values is a greater concern than treating people fairly. This is self-evident. Well, I've lowered my property, so of course I can't do that. 
here's the thing. See, it, it, it's, it's what we don't notice. It's what's self-evident to us that can trip us up. That, that, that blinds us. That's how the powers work. That's how they're, why they're, they're, they're deceptive. Paul tells us, the Apostle Paul tells us that we're to struggle against, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We'll be talking more about that in the weeks to come. But it is against the principalities and powers. There's a struggle there. If there's not a struggle there, then it means you're con- being conformed to the powers. If you're not resisting the powers, you are being shaped by the powers. That's how the thing works. Paul then says, for us as kingdom people, it's vital that we First, wake up to the powers that shape us, influence us, form our minds without our knowing it, the invisible forces that, that shape us without our knowing about it. We're to wake up to those, and then we're to live in revolt against those. That's to be our struggle. And it is a struggle. When you become aware of the powers, and we'll be talking to naming some of these powers in America, but when you become aware of them, and white supremacy is right up there, the original sin of America, well, then, then to live in revolt against that means you're constantly resisting pressure to conform. But that is the call of the kingdom. Uh, if we're not resisting the powers, we're being conformed to them. And the Bible tells us we should never be conformed to them. Uh, okay, we'll build on this in the weeks to come. Uh, God bless you guys. At this point, I'm going to call up my good covenant bro, Paul, and my great friend, Cedric, and they're going to talk a little bit about the message and where we go from here. Uh, God bless you guys. Keep me in prayer. I'll uh, see you later. Bye-bye. Cedric, it's an honor to step in for Greg and be able to kind of pick the conversation up with you about these really, really crucial ideas. Greg just mentioned um, that last piece, and Greg, you actually got most of the details right. <laughs> um, I do remember to this day, and I, I, must, I wasn't a teenager, uh, I was probably eight or nine, maybe ten. It was back in the late 60s, and I remember my dad sharing the story with me, and I don't remember a lot of the details, but what I distinctly remember is my dad saying something to the effect that, that uh, an African-American young Vikings player had looked into some property in our neighborhood and that, uh, long story short, uh, the otherwise all-white neighborhood had conversations amongst some of the neighbors and I think my dad actually said something to the effect of, like, it, w- it would have been really cool to have a Vikings player, in, like <laughs> Minnesota Vikings, but, but there was concern about the effects on property value, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And I don't know how that all played out, except I know no one ever moved into our neighborhood while we lived there that was anything but Caucasian. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, th- this week, as, as I've wrestled, continued to wrestle with things, you and Delon and, and Sean Oshita and Greg have been sharing with us, I, I was taken back to that conversation and trying to remember the faces of, of the white husbands and fathers in that neighborhood. And I'm guessing, almost certain, that none of them would have said that they are explicitly racist, right? But what happened, it seems to me, is that the American dream <laughs> clouded their eyes. They didn't see within the systems of the American dream the fact that in order to keep property values high, why? Well, come on, the American dream says I get to work hard for my equity and have a nice retirement someday. And I just wonder if the words of Jesus were forgotten there. The, the, the hard words of Jesus we cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Right? That one might have to choose whether one's retirement or the command to love one's neighbor as oneself comes into play. And I just see there that kind of structural racism built into the attitudes and practices of people. Yeah. So, uh, I got some questions that just have come to me I'd love, love to share with you. 
you really, really helped, I think, me to see in a deeper way some concreteness of structural racism, the redlining, the, the use racial restrictive covenants. Would you say then that in, at least in Minnesota, maybe other areas of our nation, that, that this housing disparity is sort of one of the main drivers of, of structural racism? Yeah, I, I, there are so many inputs into this system, structural racism, and um, I want people to really understand that housing is a major component of it, but it is not the only driver around structural racism. And um, I know that uh, some people may be saying, hey, um, no one ever gifted me with a home. Um, I never had anything passed down, you know, to me in the form of a home. But I would also say that as we as Americans in general here in this country, um, the majority of us build wealth through our homes, it's still something about having a home and having options, right? Really what this, what I'm really talking about is options. It gives you the options. It gives um, a family with um, a kid starting off in school um, options to not take out student loans. It gives options to someone starting a small business, options to have a small down payment to start their business. It gives us options um, in our home ownership um, to do a lot of different things that you just would not have had. And I think that people should think a little bit more broadly when I talk about um, uh, structural racism that housing is definitely a driver. It is not the only driver. We definitely see other racial disparities in education, health disparities. There's a lot of other things. Um, I think one of the biggest things when I'm having conversations with people is when we really start having this conversation about structural racism and we start digging into it, you really see how big and deep it is um, in that in many instances, many people think that one answer will just check off the box and then everything is done. But it's, as I said earlier, it's woven into the fabric of how we operate in many instances of our lives. And so it's a lot larger, but to specifically answer your question, um, it's not the only driver. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and to that point, I so appreciated the insight you gave about how the layeredness of this, right? I mean, you're just going through the, the a Riddler's Handbook, and then local laws, and then federal sort of supports you on that. And I think about my own neighborhood, and my, you know, in my childhood, and then property owners who probably knew nothing about racial covenants. Mm -hmm. I don't think that was in play in my neighborhood, but there was attitudes and there was beliefs there in my neighborhood, right? I wonder if you could share a bit about what, what do you see as some of the tactics and strategies that the enemy can use in terms of just basic attitudes and, and, and beliefs that, that go into the support of, of these sorts of things. Yeah, if, if, if we look back over um, time here in the United States, we would see that when a black family was able to muster up the money, to potentially move into um, a predominantly white neighborhood. And let's say that they bought the home. Um, what you would see um, more times than not is protests 
of white families at that black person's home um, to push them out to say that you don't belong here. Um, you would see different tactics, scare tactics, scaring their kids. Um, also having um, certain parents come over to uh, those parents, those black parents, and pretty much saying that our kids will not play um, with your kids. Um, again, making them not feel welcome. And uh, I think a last resort, at least in history, you saw when that black family was able to move into that predominantly white neighborhood, um, they would work together, white families would work together to try to buy them out mm. um, so they would move. And so you do have some black families that um, stayed the course, um, but a lot of them said, this isn't worth it, <laughs> um, we're moving. Um, and so those were some of the tactics that were used, but I think now some of the tactics because a lot of this is technically illegal, right? Redlining is illegal. Racial restrictive covenants are illegal. Um, but attitudes and beliefs are not. And one of the things that I really love that Greg teaches here at the church is about the love of the other. Mm. And really making sure that we go, to, go out our way to really show that love to others. And I think that that is one of the things that still lingers right around this overall system of structural racism. Um, a lot of us have the opportunity to make people feel welcome and because of how society actually functions now, some of us don't even know why we do it, but we do it and we don't welcome others in. And so to me, that is a current tactic, a past tactic, but also a current tactic that is being used now. Okay. That, that, that idea of xenophobia, phobia, just that natural desire self-centered humans have to sort of distance from anything that's yes. not like themselves. Right? Yes. And yet, as Greg says, xenophilia is love, love for the other, other, is the kingdom response there. Yeah. Um, you know, in this series, one of the most common questions we've received from folks after every one of these sermons is what might be, I mean, people want to do something, right? What might be some, some practical takeaways, maybe some actionable steps that, that we could think about putting into practice in our lives, particularly white folks, around this topic? Yeah, I, um, as a black male, I've had a lot of, of my white colleagues, white friends reach out to me, and um, it has been very endearing and also yet overwhelming <laughs> at times. Um, I think one of the things that I really want people to know, um, because this is, first of all, it's a journey, mm -hmm. right? Um, you, me, none of us will get there tomorrow. But this is a journey, and for us to really work together to make some very structural, practical changes, um, we are going to need to make sure that we are aware of what's happening and what's going on. And I think one of the first things that um, we can do practically is educate ourselves. Um, if we understand, and I truly believe this, Paul, um, that when we are standing, uh, standing up against the powers, um, for me, standing up against the powers is to understand what I'm standing up against. Yeah. And to do that, I need to be educated on some of these structural, systemic ways that the powers have played us against each other when it comes to racial, uh, racial structural, racial um, oppression. And so with that, I think that educating yourselves on systems, educating yourselves on kind of how we got here. I'm glad that uh, Greg brought up about um, free will and choice 
place, but he also says that it must be connected yes. with systems and historical context because it's hard for us to just say that someone made this decision uh, without understanding the backstory to why we got to where we are. And so I would encourage my um, white people, um, white friends, white neighbors, to really dig into kind of how we got here. Housing to me is a really good start because I feel like it is so concrete to really see systems at play. But you can also dig into uh, education, um, even health disparities. Um, we should know that I can determine, um, or at least statistically determine, um, someone's uh, life expectancy based on their zip code, right? And the difference, that difference really is based on um, race because in many instances, a lot of white people live together, a lot of black people live together. There are a lot of other reasons that that's the case, but I would encourage us to really dig into understanding why is that the case? Some of those stats that I brought up, I would encourage you to try to dig into why that's the case. A lot of us been to have been told different things, a lot of us um, think that we may automatically have the answer, but I want us to really dig into it. Um, many people want to automatically start by just doing something in changing something. But I'm concerned that if you don't have the right information, that some of the changes that you may, may uh, want to make may actually exacerbate mm. the issue. And so unintended we need to be thoughtful. Exactly, unintended consequences. So we need to be thoughtful of that. That does not minimize um, the encouragement that I have for all of us that this is serious and something needs to be done. But I do think that we need to be strategic. Just as the principalities and powers are strategic, yes. we as Christians, we as people of God need to be strategic as well. Amen. Amen. Well, toward that end, the education piece, uh, we did uh, post last week on our website a list of resources. I think it's a great place to start. And I'll just, you know, I was showing a bit about my family earlier. Um, you mentioned this, even learning more about the housing thing, and I watched um, a video that was produced by PBS this last mm -hmm. year, um, Jim Crow of the North. Yeah. And <laughs> There's another way the Eddie family, the white Eddie family, I found is caught up in this whole thing. The opening scene of that video is Franklin Avenue, Minneapolis. And it turns out that in uh, 1909, the very thing you mentioned happened, <laughs> a black family moved into this all-white neighborhood and within a short time, a hundred white folks were in their yard protesting. And out of that, the very next year started these racial covenants in Minneapolis. Well, my grandparents bought a home on Franklin Avenue, 1400 Franklin, a few blocks from there in the 1940s. And so I had no idea that my grandparents were already, in a sense, benefiting mm -hmm. from the sorts of things you've shared with us today. And this is, you know, so in my Eddie family, both in my dad's generation and my generation as a kid, I now realize things that I never would have considered before as part of the structural racism. Mm -hmm. I never, never saw it without having brothers and sisters like you help me to see that. Thank you for your voice this last few weeks. We'd just like you to know that as we end the service here, uh, for anyone who would like prayer, we have prayer partners, one-on-one uh, -on -one, uh, Zoom rooms available for you. You'll see the, the uh, web address there on your screen. Also want to invite you to consider joining us for our gathering groups on Tuesdays or Wednesdays. Also our MuseCast, Tuesday afternoon at 4, where we get a chance to process this kind of content in, in, in more depth. And uh, lastly, I'd like to say that, um, uh, you know, our communities here in, in, in the 
Twin Cities are continuing to struggle with some of the crisis from the last few weeks. And uh, we as a church are doing our best to raise $25,000 for what's called the One Fund. And it's uh, going to a group of African American churches in some of the hardest hit neighborhoods we're trying to help restore some of the things that were damaged and broken in the recent uh, times in our city. If you'd like to uh, help us with that, you can see the website there on your screen. Uh, Frederick, can you close this? Cedric, I'm sorry, Cedric. <laughs> can you close this in prayer, my friend? Uh, yeah, Paul, one of the things that I just wanted to say um, to everyone that um, we've heard another uh, shooting has happened and taken place in Atlanta, Georgia. And um, from what I'm reading and what I'm seeing, I think his name was Richard Brooks in his 20s, uh, was shot by a police officer. And there's beginning to be even more civil unrest um, in the city and um, things are happening. And it is definitely reminiscent to some of the things that we felt here. And so um, I also just want to pray about Absolutely. that because I really do believe that they're going to need our prayer thank down you. there. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We are so grateful for your love, your power, and your grace. We still believe that you are on the throne and you are hearing our cry. Yes. We pray, Father God, right now for just this world. Um, there's so much going on. There's so many people that are despondent. Um, they're hurting. They need you. Um, justice also needs to be served, and they're looking to you. They're crying out to you. Father, you know all, you see all, and you're the only one that can really help us in this time. I pray right now for your love to spread. I pray right now, God, that you hold us even more so closely. I pray, Father, that your grace abounds, even in this very dark and troubling time. I lift up the Twin Cities before you. I pray, God, that you continue to bring us together. Uh, I pray, Father God, that your love just move out the hate um, in our hearts, God, that we are able to have love for one another. I also lift up Atlanta, Georgia, and that community um, that's really beginning to face civil unrest. I pray, God, for the family that has lost their child. I pray, God, that you be with those that are in leadership and authority. Ultimately, God, we need you during this time. Our faith, our hope, our trust is in you. I pray, God, that you continue to bless us, be with us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank, Thank you. you.